mabelwadsworth.org. Information presented on health-related programs on WERU is not meant to be taken as medical advice. Please talk with your health care provider if you have any questions or concerns. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host Rhonda Feynman is up next. Good morning. Hello, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and on today's program on Healthy Options, we'll get an update on some imp- on an important subject, something we've discussed earlier, and we'll discuss again, I'm sure. Uh, we're going to be discussing Lyme disease and other tick-borne co-infections. I guess it's uh, one of the other ways to get ready for spring. Here we are. It's not too early. Our guests are Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey, um, who's a nurse, and they're here with us today to review new information, discuss current thoughts on dealing with ticks and Lyme disease, and we'll do a review of uh, all the things we can do to pr- protect ourselves. Dr. Uh, Santier is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, a member of the American College of Physicians. She's board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Um, Dr. Santier came to Maine 25 years ago through the National Health Service Corps, and for the past 17 years, she spent thousands of hours. I think that goes... Yeah, I think that's a, 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 a less of an estimate, you know, on the lower end. Right? Investigating Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders. She currently participates on the state state of Maine vector-borne disease work group. She's a member of the Maine Medical Association and the Internal Lyme. International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, or our ILADS. Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease, related tick-borne disorders to professional community groups throughout New England. She's given testimony before the Maine legislature concerning Lyme disease in the state of Maine. And uh, we'll talk more about that aspect as well as the show continues. And a Constance Happy Dickey is a registered nurse from Hamden, Maine. She worked at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor for 25 years and since 1999 has had a special interest in Lyme and related disease and has spent much time and energy researching tick-borne illness. Happy Dickey was on the board of directors of ILADS and from 2001 to 2007, she facilitates support groups for people with Lyme, both in person in Maine and online. She's also an advocate for patients with Lyme disease. She's traveled extensively with Dr. Santier, educating medical personnel and the public about Lyme disease. Happy Dickey is a founding member and board member of Maine Lyme, a nonprofit group dedicated to awareness and prevention through education and advocacy. So welcome back to Healthy Options and WERU, uh, Beatrice Santier and happy Dickie. Thanks. We're, we're so glad you could be here today. Great to be here with you, Rhonda. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Oh, absolutely. Really glad. Um, so, um, there, you, since we've spoken last, you've been to some conferences. There's some yeah. new information that we can share a little bit. Well, there, there's new information. I, I think um, the important old information is that uh, the temperatures are warming up. It's getting to be above freezing and ticks are going to be active. Uh, harder for us who are a little farther north uh, to uh, to appreciate because it has not been so mild. But in the parts of the state where we're seeing 40 degree temperatures, we're starting, we'll start seeing ticks. In fact, happy uh, I got a report of somebody um, that took one off their dog yesterday in Woolwich, and they have eight inches of snow in their yard. Ah, 
so it, it gets your attention when you realize it really isn't too soon to start talking about uh, how to protect yourself and and prevent Lyme. So, so we could have had this conversation in, in the middle of the big snowstorm and it still would have been relevant. It's never too early. <laughs> a lot harder to pay attention at that point, but it's still relevant. Well, the mildness of December, there were there were definitely um, ticks and, and uh, ticks submitted during that season. It's, it's always a little bit astonishing. Yeah. And, and when I say ticks, I don't mean just what are called the winter ticks or moose ticks, but, but deer ticks, even that late in the season. When it's mild enough, we see them active. So they're there. Right. Well, what, what usually happens, uh, the tick-like cycle, what the specific tick we're talking about is commonly called the deer tick, but its technical name is Ixodes scapularis. So it's a hard-bodied tick. And it is most responsible for uh, transmission of Lyme disease, certainly in this state. And um, basically its life cycle is uh, it, the eggs are laid into the leaf litter by uh, a mother and they hatch out in the spring. Uh, they hatch out as a larva. The larva hangs around and takes its blood meal when it has the opportunity. And the larva is extremely small, um, truly difficult to, to see with the naked eye. You can, but very, very small. Um, and so they'll feed on uh, a small mammal, uh, typically a white-footed mouse. And white-footed mice happen to be the major reservoir of the bacteria that uh, causes Lyme disease. So if they happen to feed on an infected mouse, they acquire the infection, then they uh, molt into the nymph winter over and the nymph comes out the following uh, spring. Uh, the nymph goes looking for its blood meal, uh, probably most active from April through, uh, I guess, August, though we can sometimes see them pass there. So the peak incident, the time that we see most Lyme disease uh, being identified are the summer months, June, July, and August, because that coincides with when the nymph is off getting its blood meal. Now, nymphs are slightly larger than these larval ticks, and the nymph is about, <clears throat> excuse me, about the size of a poppy seed. So very easy to miss if you're looking for it, um, and extremely easy to miss if you're not looking for it. Uh, and it, all of these, these forms can transmit? Once the tick becomes infected, it is always infected, and so it can transmit the infection. So if the nymph takes its blood meal, it would be very happy feeding on a small mammal like a white-footed mouse, but it will also feed on you or your dog or your cat or your horse. Um, the, uh, the nymph then goes on to molt into an adult. The adult ticks look for their blood meal in the fall. So we're looking at uh, sort of the September, October, November population, and this year into December because it was mild. Um, if they fail to get a blood meal at that point, they winter over. So they're in the leaf litter, they winter over, and as soon as the temperatures are above freezing, they become active. So the adult ticks begin questing for their meals in the earlier spring, often as early as March. Usually we think of them as starting in April, but if it's mild and the temperatures are above freezing, they're questing for a blood meal. 
Well, you know, there's so much popularity about vampires these days, <laughs> and you keep talking about this blood meal. I, I'm sorry. I just well, it, it's what sustains <laughs> them, you know. You, you have to try not to hate them. I mean, they're but just being good animals, they're and they're very efficient they at what right. they do. I think you have to remember here, too, that not every tick is infected with Lyme disease. Exactly. That about 50% in the state of Maine are considered to be infected. Yeah. Well, at least that's the number we use, because we okay. know that in some pockets, 80% of ticks are probably carrying the disease. In other pockets, it might be five. The problem is, of course, we can't know location to location. And so we use the number 50% because uh, that allows us to guide our thinking. It's a pretty neutral number. Okay. So um, now that people are going to be thinking about this, uh, (laughs) what do we do? What do you do when you... you, uh... If you find a tick attached. First thing, don't panic. Um, you know, the, the natural inclination is to do whatever you can to just rip it off of you. Well, well try not to panic. If you find a tick attached, um, take a deep breath because you do have a little time. There is a, a certain amount of time required between the time that the tick becomes attached and the transmission of the infection. It's a process that has to happen. The infection, when the tick starts to feed, is generally located in the tick's midgut. As it feeds, it multi- the bacteria multiplies, gets back into tick circulation, and makes its way to the salivary glands. Now, everybody's going to love this. I mean, it's after breakfast, before lunch, so I guess we're safe. The way ticks feed is they suck a little, spit a little. So as they feed, this bacteria gets to the salivary glands, and some amount of time needs to pass before it really is able to transmit the bacteria that carries Lyme. Uh, so you can take a moment and using either tweezers or a tick scoop, getting the tick as close to the skin as possible, steady, gentle pressure, you lift the tick out. So I, I've discovered that the, the long, the, 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 the needle nose tweezers, the long ones are really more effective. Easier to use. They are. I mean, these are small ticks. Even when they're adults, they're pretty small. So, you know, sesame-sized, sesame seed-sized ticks. So, yeah, fine-nosed, fine-pointed tweezers work the best. Um, Or the tick scoop really seems to work well. The tick scoop looks like um, a teaspoon measure with a V-notch carved into the front Mm -hmm. of it. And if you get scoop that underneath the tick coming from behind the tick and just keep moving forward along the skin, you end up with a tick whose mouth parts are wedged into the V-notch and it's located right in your nice little scoop. And that's the idea, to get the whole tick. Get the whole tick if if you can. If the mouth parts stay behind, the mouth parts themselves do not represent a risk for more Lyme disease, but the fact that the tick broke makes it a little bit more complicated of a bite. So, so early uh, removal, early proper removal is really the way to avoid um, allowing enough time for infection to be passed. Uh, do you want to talk about things not to do to remove the tick? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> right. um, and, and these directions are located on the website mainlime.org as well. So if you don't remember right now, you know you have a place to go and, and look those Great. directions up. But you don't want to um, put anything on the tick that annoys the tick, like Vaseline, alcohol, a hot match, or dish soap. You don't want to squeeze the body of the tick because that's where the infection is located. And if you squeeze it, you're apt to force the gut 
contents into the wound and make what could have been an innocent bite um, a bad bite at that time. There's also um, information that has gone around the internet that if you put Dawn dish soap on a cotton ball and put it on the tick, it will cause the tick to back out. That's probably not true. And if it happened, you were lucky. If it doesn't happen, then you're stuck with a, 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 a very um, wet, slippery tick. Um, so and it's an annoyed just best tick. not to do it. Right. And if you annoy the tick, it may regurgitate into the womb. That is, it might throw up. No. Nobody wants that. No. So never annoy the tick. Treat never annoy the tick. <laughs> that, 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 that's the mantra. <laughs> right. So, no, so that natch thing, not, not anymore. Yeah. No. no. I it keep hearing about it. People you know, keep talking act- to me about it. They've actually studied this stuff in the laboratory. The guys out at uh, Ohio State in their uh, entomology group looked at this. Um, they have a, a, a serious tick study group out there. And they really demonstrated with, with clarity that the best method is find nose tweezers as close to the skin as possible. Steady, gentle pressure. Don't twist. Just steady, gentle pressure straight out. And that a scoop works similarly to that. And every other method that they have looked at uh, runs the risk of um, causing the tick to regurgitate or leaving you with a, a, a messy removal. Mm-hmm. So because there's a little time before transmission is likely to occur, how much time? You know, it used to be that folks said 72 hours and then uh, we backed down to 48 hours and now it's back down to 24 hours some amount of time. We don't know exactly how much. Is there zero transmission at four hours? No, I've seen some Lyme disease cases develop after short-term tick attachment. There's even a a recent article that's been published, uh, High Note, uh, published in, in, um, I'm not sure which journal, doesn't matter, but documenting short-term tick attachment and the onset of um, Lyme disease. So we know it can happen. Um, but the shorter duration that tick is allowed to be attached, the less likely it is to have the opportunity to transmit infection. Of course, that doesn't take into account some of the other infectors that travel in the and, same ticks. And, yeah, so. so let's talk about about some of the co-infections that yeah. we're... And, yeah. and some of the new information. I know there is some new information about, about co-infections. So. Well, increasingly, uh, in this state, one of the uh, co-infectors that we're seeing dramatically increase is anaplasma. We've really? doubled the numbers of anaplasma uh, infections reported in the last year. Um, it still does not, <clears throat> pardon me, compete with the number of cases of Lyme disease. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'll just hack along here, but um, but it is an no increasing problem, problem and, and we are seeing it, um, it through much of the state, and so it, it is... Uh, what are the symptoms? What, what How would someone even think that they have that? Well, you know, it looks a lot like, like Lyme. <laughs> <laughs> there may or may not be a rash. It would not be the telltale rash that we see with Lyme disease. The, the Which classic is the symptom is, is this expanding red rash at the site of a tick bite and that is classic for Lyme. Actually the classic as you point out is the bullseye rash. Unfortunately the classic rash is not the common rash. Only about 9% of the rashes identified in the big vaccine trials that were done. Only 9% were these bullseye type rashes. The vast majority of the rashes observed were uniformly red expanding rashes. So they sort of spread out um, centrifugally, you know, uh, from the center outward in all directions. That would be 
the most common lime did, rash. Did, for, can you also see prickles or any petechia? You know, that's little petechia. like little spots, like petechia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Little, little spots, those little, little red, red spots. spots. Yeah, you know, it it can have a very different appearance, and so you really have to maintain a level of suspicion. You know, if if the situation is right, if the story, the possibility for for um, a tick attachment with rash is is there, then you have to entertain that not all rashes will look like the common or classic rash. Right. So, um, so we're talking about the that co the co infection. Will there be fever? Do we think or it can Often, be fever? Um, plus minus a rash. Children are a little more likely to get a rash than adults. Um, uh, and and usually the fever is a pretty high fever, and you're sick. I mean, sick. You feel flu-like. You feel quite sick with it. In the laboratory is probably where we can get some distinguishers. Um, with their lichia, there tends to be a lower white count, so the white blood cell count falls it, rather than rise, though it can rise. But if the white blood cell count is low and uh, liver functions are elevated and the platelet count is low that tends to go along with an Ehrlichia infection. And then, of course, we can do some, some testing to identify whether there's antibodies directed against this um, bacteria or uh, PCR that is looking for the DNA of the bacteria. PCR those, is the DNA. DNA. Mm -hmm. But those, you know, those tests take a little longer, hard to come back. Um, most of the time, we're making these decisions about treatment in the moment without the benefit of these tests that may confirm it later on because you don't wait when people are that sick. Right. So you would start, uh, the thing is though, would different antibiotic be used at, at that point? The or? nice thing is um, for anaplasma and ehrlichia, it's uh, the, the first choice of antibiotic in Lyme is often one of the tetracycline group. Commonly people hear about doxycycline and that's a very good choice for ehrlichia as well. So the good news is when we make a decision to treat Lyme, we're also probably taking care of your ehrlichia problem, your anaplasma problem at the same moment. And so what else is there now? We we, we have ehrlichia, anaplasma, we have Lyme. Uh, Babesia oh, that's is probably right. another mm -hmm. really important one. Um, Babesia is a malaria-like infector, so it lives inside of red blood cells um, and often presents with uh, high fever, um, anemia, because it lives inside of red blood cells, so you might have an mm. anemia, but that, again, is a laboratory test. People often also complain of headache um, and uh, shortness of breath, uh, just an air hunger sort of feeling, so uh, another infector that can happen. Interestingly about Babesia is most people who get Babesia probably have no symptoms at all. Um, Why is that? I don't know. But you can be infected. There's the Nobel Medical Pre well, Prize right you there. Know, yeah. You can be infected without being sick with many diseases, right? Yes. I mean, people who get tuberculosis are often infected but not ill. Um, when your TB skin test turns positive from negative, that means you are infected, but you may not have a disease at that point. Now, generally speaking, we treat you at that point for tuberculosis because we don't want you to develop the disease. But the okay. same is true with Babesia. And we know this because of um, transfusion-related problems with Babesia. Um, it's becoming a very important issue for 
for transfusion medicine. It can be because it can be passed it along. It can be passed along and, in and transfusions. It, it, those kinds of things get passed to fetus to to, fetuses to babies and babies or, and yeah. yeah so uh huh. So it's in the so we have to. It can be in the, can blood, be supply in the blood supply and, and so the you know the folks who are responsible for protecting the blood supply are, are very seriously looking at Babesia at this point and ways in which there are already questions to try to avoid people who may be infected uh, donating blood. But again, if you how don't do you know... De- how do you detect that? Is it Well, there are blood tests to do. Um, again, right. difficult to make it perfectly reliable. If you happen to be immune compromised and lack a spleen and so you don't clear out those infected red cells, you might be more easily detected. But of course, if you did that, you'd be sick. People who are immune compromised... Right. If they are infected with Babesia, they are usually sick. Mm-hmm. It's people who are immune competent do very well. So it's using blood tests and, and figuring out how to handle the blood best, how to handle the screening process to prevent people who may be infected from donating, and then how to screen the blood afterwards to make sure that we have safe blood supply. The good news is we do have a safe blood supply, but this is an issue that needs to be addressed going mm-hmm. forward to keep it safe. Mm-hmm. So. so- and now, um, my understanding is, uh, let me just uh, say and uh, tell people who uh, who they're <laughs> listening to. This is the Healthy Options uh, Program on WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and uh, we're speaking with Lyme specialist Dr. Beatrice <laughs> Santier. Right, should we put it that way? <laughs> oh, it always makes you know. Um, what is it in the expert's mind? Few oh, things yeah. are possible. In the beginner's mind, all things are right, possible. That's I, right. I, I'm still a beginner. We're at the beginner's <laughs> mind. The, someone who knows a little bit more than maybe the rest of us about Lyme. I'm Dr. Beatrice Santier <laughs> and Constance Happy Dickey. Right? They've been instrumental in educating the public and healthcare professionals about Lyme disease. And now we're discussing some updated information on ticks and Lyme disease and other tick-borne disorders, yeah. which brings us to... Uh, see, you, you already know more than, than we do. There's this <laughs> new thing that you learned about. Yes. Mm. No? Okay. Yes. Yeah. yes. Well, Borrelia myomotoi. How's that? Well... <clears throat> As a Japanese acupuncturist, I feel that, that sounds very a kinship Japanese. with it, aren't you? Kin- a kinship. That's there. right. Well, it, it's kind of exciting. Um, it's not that. <clears throat> excuse me. It's not that we didn't know that Myomotoi existed. Um, it has been around, but it was identified recently in ticks in New England, and there is some concern. Um, that individuals who have been very ill with symptoms that look like Lyme but have tested negative for Lyme disease itself may well have been infected with myomotoi um, because it is one of the relapsing fever Borrelia. So interesting there that it it can recur and and come and go. And I do have that frog and I don't know what we're (laughs) going to do about it. Sorry. Um, So Borrelia myomotoi was identified and... um, there are some tests that are done for it, but like all things, you know, the sensitivity and specificity of the tests needs to be determined so that we know how likely it is that this is a bad actor. But it's interesting to think that, you know, individuals who have long complained that they're ill have been unable to be identified as having Lyme may well have had this Lyme-like illness that was not identified until now. So it's a recurring fever situation. And it looks different or... Looks different. Than Lyme or... 
you know, again, febrile flu-like illnesses look a lot alike. It's it's one more thing we have to consider in in the list of things that cause febrile illnesses after tick bite or so often okay. without knowledge of tick bite because we, we right. often do not know. So, and But I it's th- the I same th- tick. I think the importance of this discovery is that there may be, I mean, we only have one patient at this point that has been identified. and But what it shows us is that we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> well, I, and I, oh, okay. And then there was, I, I, my understanding is that people had identified it before but didn't think that it did anything right. or that it was uh, active, in, active humans. in humans. Right. right. And the person who was, was sick was profoundly ill, so... Eighty-year-old woman, I understand. Yes, yeah, Yeah. and and I guess if you look through the literature, there probably are a few other human cases or cases that we believe now were probably myomotoi, but but it is important. It keeps us humble, knowing that um, we may not know. We we you know, ticks have been described as cesspools of uh, human pestilence here. Well, they, they do. Repetitively feeding blood-sucking parasites that feed on rodents. That's not complicated. It's This is not a good thing. And they're, you know, the other thing that they were talking about recently is that maybe um, Powassan uh, is is uh, also being transmitted in... What is in that? Scapularis, Ixodes scapularis. Powassan is a virus, um, and it's really a... A rather nasty virus. We had thought that it was uh, transmitted just by Ixodes kukii or the woodchuck tick. It's not commonly identified. It may be that there are very mild cases that happen and never are identified. You know, it's it, everything happens on a bit of a spectrum. But there is some reason to think that Ixodes scapularis may be competent to transmit this as well. If it were, and if it were commonly around, you would think we'd we'd be seeing a lot more of it. But it's just, it, it's more of, we're finding it in some ticks and we need to be aware that there are things we cannot know. And so when people wow. are ill, you really have to allow your mind to be open to what the possibilities may be. So do we know how to treat this? Do we use the doxycycline? There is uh, no treatment. No for treatment for Powassan. No. Oh, I'm but sorry. I was Myomotoy. Myomotoy. Uh, I believe it's the same antibiotics. That's kind of the good news. Although, you know, I, I'm not remembering clearly right now. I guess I don't know the answer to that question. Sorry about that. I, well, I, I do know, know in, in some of the articles that I that I was reading about it that that they said that that she was put on antibiotics, but they didn't specify Identify which one. Which, yeah, I guess I'm and not then, sure. She was out again. She she got more confused. And I think it's interesting. Relapsing uh, fever. Relapsing fever and got very confused. She's 80 years old. And what I'm very pleased about is that they took it very seriously and didn't say, oh, it's just because you're 80 right. years old exactly. and a woman. <laughs> she wasn't discounted. <laughs> oh, you know. Oh, old it's all in your old It's all in your head. Yeah. And they actually treated her. And then I love it. At the end, they say, and then she was herself again, and she was out building garden walls with out of stone <laughs> right risky business Risk, right? that's it <laughs> building stone walls out with, in the uh, in the garden yeah so oh yeah, did okay. she ever repellents on well and that's the other yeah. thing right what what right we should talk a little bit about about that so we, we can wrap our minds around that i, I also want to remind us that the at uh, the hygienics lab you can send your tick 
there. Well, Igenix, yeah. And I've done that. Yeah. There so, are other and there ones, are other ones too. now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, well, do we know what they are? Do you have that? Well, the we one can... in, what's the Massachusetts, uh, there's, oh, goodness gracious. Wait a second. I Don't, think... I wish I had written that down for you I today. A... Because the, uh, they're apparently doing a very nice right. job. And uh, for a nice, reasonable fee. Really? Yeah. Okay. Is this it? The uh, UMass Extension? That is yes. it. Yes, the UMass Extension. Amherst, right. And, yeah. and Amherst. See, I think they weren't, when we first did this, they, they were just starting to do that. Yeah. And you could get to their information at www.umass.edu yeah. forward slash tech. Now, you should probably let folks know, you know, nobody has paid any of us sitting at this table to advertise oh, these locations. No. So uh, I see them as resources. It's just resource that's, material. That's exactly I think right. one of the greatest um, tick resources is the Tick Resource Center at um, URI, University of Rhode Island. Yeah. They have a fabulous tick website. Yeah, a okay. good place to go. University of Rhode Island uh, tick, tick, resource tick resources. Okay. Yeah. Good. Very well, nice online. Uh, good. good information, good discussion, and... Uh, well, and, and the, actually, they'll call you back if you have a question. So they're very nice. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Now, so, of course, they'll... And, and our own in-state resources actually are quite good. We have the Maine Lyme Research Lab uh, associated with Maine Medical Center uh, compiles a lot of the data around uh, ticks throughout the state. So when individuals send in ticks that they find um, to our, our in-state resource, um, they will not test to see what's in the tick, although right. there is talk about this developing, and hopefully um, the university is going to be able to develop this research capability um, in the near future. It, it's all funding dependent, but uh, it makes it easy for me to get on board that particular piece of funding. It would be fantastic to do this right in state and and that have this really information nice. here, uh, as it is now. Uh, you know, there's just not there's not a lot of money for this activity. But if you do find ticks and send them to the state lab or the mainline research group, they do identify the tick, identify the state of engorgement and and give you that piece of information. So if the tick has been attached to a person, you may want more information than that. It, it depends on what impact it's gonna have on your decision making. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> It will be great when we when we get the resource in in well, state. To do well, this. one of the things that's that's available, and I know we we've talked about this um, when when I of course did my primary research and decided yes. to get a tick bite just for scientific evidence based purposes. Um, <laughs> yes, I. Um, one what what we do have resources in terms of uh, herbal aspects that we can do. Uh, if there's a little time to, if you're not very, you know, if you're not sick, you present with a, a fever and you're sick after a tick bite, uh, I think and you have to get treated. And I, I think that's a, a good idea. And, um, but I was remember we did, I used astragalus and then there's artemisia. That's a, it's a mugwort a, a product and there's a Japanese knotweed and there are things that you can do. And, because I, I do believe in that kind of integrative process. If you want, if you have your tick and you've taken it out, send it to some of these areas and see if there's something. And then you can make a decision, I, I felt, yeah. um, about whether you're going to go an antibiotic route. And some people I know right. have a big question about whether they ever want to do that. Right. Sometimes, and I do believe sometimes it is the right thing to do and right. go for it. 
and sometimes you have a little time and there are other things yeah. you can be doing to actually work with the bacteria um, then go for that as well so it can be you can't you have we have resources in this in our in our 21st century right. toolbox right yeah. and it's not a pen it's it, it nobody wants to panic anyone with this information this is right. so that you can be appropriate you can take thoughtful precautions to prevent the tick bite and so that if it happens you can thoughtfully approach the next steps how do you how do you address a tick attachment how do you address early lyme disease how mm-hmm. what do you need to know in order to maintain your health exactly and um so bolster your immune system right eat well sleep do your tai chi <laughs> always <laughs> always good plan. everybody always a good plan <clears throat> build that internal internal uh, yin and yang so that you will be very strong and uh, and then on the practical level on the other practical <laughs> level that's practical yeah, that's yeah. very practical what yeah. am i saying yeah. um but then there are things you can do before you go out can we can maybe you could talk a little bit again about the, some of the preventative measures with the the uh the way to dress yes. and all of those things that we haven't to remind I, people I, I think that there will be a time when you're not going to be wearing uh, turtlenecks. Yeah, I think everybody needs to um, know this information and to incorporate it into their, you know, routine daily routines. It's it's no longer an option as to whether or not you're going to protect yourself from ticks. Um, you have to know tick habitat, which is um, you know high grass, leaf litter, um, that kind of things. And when you go out into risky areas, then you need to wear appropriate clothing, which is cover up as much as possible with your pants tucked into your socks and your waist tucked in and your long sleeves. Um, And then on your exposed skin, you need to use repellents. Um, DEET is the gold standard, at least 23% up to about 35%. You can use permethrin on your clothing. It can be used on your um, shoes, hats, neckerchiefs, socks. Um, You can buy clothing that's impregnated with permethrin from companies like Land's End or L.L. Bean. Um, Hunting um, clothing comes now um, impregnated with permethrin, or you can do your own there are other repellents that you can use. One is called picaridin at 20% um, is effect, is proven to be as effective as DEET. It seems to be a little better tolerated by people who have um, chemical sensitivities. Avon has a product called um, Bug Guard Plus Expedition. It has IR3535 in it, and that is as effective as DEET. It has to be 15%. Um, they sell a 7%, which is not proven not to the one. last as long. Um, everybody asks about natural products. Um, yes. There are natural products on the market. Some um, are labeled as tick repellents. I think um, what you'll find is that they're not effective for very long sometimes as little as 15 minutes, Mm. which doesn't really help you um, if you're going to go outside. And so you would have to reapply those products more frequently. And then at high doses, even natural products become toxic. So you really have to um, do a little research and figure out what you're most comfortable with and what is 
you know, the, the best protection for your individual instance. Tick checks um, at the end of the day are by far the best um, protection that you can do when you want to check in all the hot spots, we call them behind the knees, um, around the waist, under the breast, under the armpits, around the head and neck. Um, in children, you have to check them at the end of the day. And as soon as you can teach them to check themselves, you know, around seven or eight, nine kids yeah, become otherwise you'll modest. Go crazy for the rest right. of your life. Yes, right. Right. Kids <laughs> become very modest and they don't want you checking them. That's right. But, you know, if you teach them how to check themselves and to alert you to anything that's new or unusual, um, then they, good. they can be, you know, allowed to do that. That's good. So washing the, and drying your clothes when you come in? You know. uh, good point. You know, what we've often told folks is um, toss your clothes into the dryer on high heat because ticks do not like it dry. One of the, the common features of the tick habitats Happy describes is moisture. You know, nice moist environments are friendly to ticks. So they don't like it hot and they don't like it dry. So the dryer is your friend at that point. Um the permethrin thing you should know is not good for cats. I, I was just so if, if you like your cat, you don't want to leave your permethrin clothes on the floor in the laundry room. You really have to keep your cat and uh, your clothes separate. Cats lack an enzyme to break this down that we do not lack. So it, it becomes a problem for them. And the other thing... Uh, about this, you know, you might want to take a shower when you come in. Uh, there's not magic to the shower, although there have actually been studies that looked at this. And it's just that you touch everywhere when you take a shower. You're washing everything and touching. And what you're touching for, you're not just looking for these ticks, you're feeling to see if you feel a bump. And that can be very useful because if you find a bump, have someone check and see if that bump has legs and then carefully remove it. Uh, and <laughs> lastly, you do want to wash off the repellents once you've had them on you. So yes. the most important safety feature to the use of repellents, whether it's natural or um, synthetic, is to wash it off between wear. The difficulties that have been found with DEET, and we have over 60 years of safety information about DEET. DEET is not DDT. DEET is different. So DEET is a, a fairly safe repellent that can be used and has been approved by the EPA for all ages and all circumstances. But the important part is washing it off. The difficulties have been in individuals who have used high-dose applications frequently applied over a long period of time without washing off. Mm -hmm. So, And is, it's not for children? It is for children. It is. Um, yeah. As, you know, I, I'm an internist. I'm a pediatrician. As a pediatrician, I can tell you that small children have uh, really a high ratio of body surface area to weight. So in those children, I, I think you would want to be extremely careful about what you're putting on skin because they yes. do have very tender... Um, absorbing skin. So it may be that in small children I would have hesitation even though there has not been on the part of the EPA a distinction made. As a pediatrician I just have to say you, you have to use prudence. You do not want a lot of uh, chemicals on your babies. Yep. Yep. Well good. Thank you. We're all we're all uh, 
thinking about that. Now, what, what about heat therapy in saunas? Do we know anything about that? Or is that another... We, we have to go research further on this one. But. Well, you can research a lot and you're not going to find a lot of information. I think, you know, uh, you probably know way more about uh, sauna therapy and, and toxin removal. And largely what we're talking about at least in Lyme world when we're talking about this, are individuals who have been um, persistently ill. And individuals who are persistently ill after being infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, we believe probably have a persistent infection. But as this progresses and becomes a chronic problem, so many other things enter in that make it more difficult. We know that people who are multiply infected are more ill and require more treatment. There was a, a paper written, geez, a number of years ago now by Krauss, the same fellow who identified this Borrelia myomotoi, uh, talking about the uh, having Babesia and uh, Lyme, Borrelia, at the same time, making for a more significant illness and more difficult to treat, requiring a longer therapy. So that's we've known that for a pretty long time. But if you are sick long term, then other factors enter in, like how how well your immune system is doing its job. Um, also, we talk about heavy metal toxicities and the number of other factors that yes. begin to enter into your overall wellness and your immune system's ability to do the job you're asking it to do. So I have understood sauna or, or that kind of heat as being an adjunctive kind of therapy that... Um, may just globally assist your body in, in eliminating toxins and um, improving your overall health. The specific use for the Lyme infection is much more difficult, and there are no papers directly related to this, but I think people extrapolated from uh, information about malaria therapy for some uh, illnesses. If you get a high enough body temperature... Um, you may kill off some bacteria. Right. Can you achieve that with saunas? Do we really know that that works? No, we have no data. Right. So, so right. we don't know without data. And and then of course there are the the stories, the right. uh, you know personal um, anecdote anecdotal stories. And I do know uh, someone who went. There's a, a clinic in in Swiss, Switzerland and th this whole thing where that's people are going. And that's a whole other thing. That, yeah, that's uh, intracellular heat therapy. Yes. And that's a very different thing. And I have yes. to tell you, that sounds dangerous to me. Scary. Um, we don't have the data right. uh, on that at all. And what yeah. we're talking about in that therapy is people are having their ability to regulate energy at the cellular level altered so that you get not just internal heat but intracellular heat you know the product of Ooh. energy uncoupling that's a long conversation we don't no. we don't need to go there but I, I think that we cannot know with confidence how mm -hmm. that works it, and, I, and it sounds dangerous the reason I bring it up is because there is conversation about that in our in our community and I wanted to uh, to have a comfort, you know, at least a, from one another perspective. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm pretty invested yes. in Western because it is. I'm interested in everything else, but right. but I know what I know, and and what I know is is kind of Western medicine. Right. But my guideline for looking at complementary treatments is, and 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 I offer this just as mine. This is not mm -hmm. like uh, authoritative no. in any way, but is it likely to help? And then is it likely to cause harm? 
And if I can look at that and say, well, it is likely to help and it has a low likelihood of harm, then I think it's it's worthy of consideration. If the, the potential for harm is great, then you have a lot of thinking to do before you make a decision about that. Right. that the, and that's, I think, a, a, a wise a wise barometer for any decision, <laughs> medical decision. Well, you know, it's how we, it is how we make medical decisions, or it's how we ought to make medical decisions all right. the time. You, we're always weighing risk and, risk and balance and risk and benefit, um, because even the decision to choose an antibiotic or choose an antibiotic for a longer than customary time yes. has to be laid aside, you know, what are the benefits that are likely to occur? What are the needs that we're addressing? And what are the likely harms that we're going to produce? It is not a small matter to choose antibiotics. No one ever thinks that. It it all requires that you think it through and that you have this conversation with your, your clinician so that you understand what the reasonable possibilities are, what your likely outcome is if you use A, B, or C, and and what are you going to do when, when or if that doesn't work? So, so yes, I, that's always to go in with a, that kind of reasonable uh, conversation. Yeah. Well, I just want to tell everyone again that you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today we're discussing um, Lyme disease, some new information, some uh, about ticks and co-infections, and we're here with very knowledgeable and. Uh, <laughs> experienced individuals who know more than we do. We won't call them experts, but okay, maybe just a little bit. All right. <laughs> Dr. Vitra Santier of Lincoln, Maine is a board-certified internist and pediatrician and has spent many years researching Lyme and has lectured on Lyme all throughout New England. And Constance Happy Dickey, who's a registered nurse, who's also spent much time in energy researching tick-borne diseases, and advocate for is an advocate for people with Lyme disease, and facilitates support groups online and in Maine. And uh, thanks again for being here. So we have um, um, uh, some other information now. One of the things we've talked about in the past are some factors. We know the blood tests are we're, we're not sure. There's still questions. It's a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and, and then, but we have been talking about things like CD57 and the immune system, and maybe you can tell us some new things that we've learned about that. Well, some of the new things are old. Um, you know, the, the tests remain, <laughs> the things. sadly, the tests remain unreliable. And I think that's an important piece to know. Um, throughout medicine, we just don't allow the laboratory to make diagnoses. The idea that it's <clears throat> excuse me, a clinical diagnosis is critical. And it's, you know, the main CDC says it's in, says that in its report to the legislature. Um, the national CDC says it on its own website. Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis. The case rate, the case numbers that we track are specific surveillance stuff and defined uh, cases. So that's a, a really exclusive little group <clears throat> closely defined. And we have to distinguish between defining that group in order to follow trends and a person-to-person, <clears throat> excuse me, clinical decision-making d- for treatment. Using the laboratory testing, um, knowing that the way it is set up and advocated um, by, uh, by CDC, the two-tier test protocol, 
um, has great potential to miss cases of Lyme disease. We know that its sensitivity, its ability to pick up cases when it's done as prescribed, overall runs about 56%. That's, that's not good enough. Um, its specificity is actually quite good. If we do find a case that way, we're pretty sure that it is Lyme. So there has to be great caution because there are many factors that can feed in to negative testing. So that that's new old news, um, right. but, but important news to know. Um, in our state, you know, the, the cases have climbed. We're going to, uh, the reported number as of January, we're 1,095 cases of Lyme in the state. And we know that that's that probably underestimates by a factor of 10 how many cases there actually were. Um, they believe that the case number will probably be over 1,100 when they finish counting for last year. So that that's, that's, a lot. that's important. And every year except 2010 in the last, I don't know how many years, the numbers have gone up. So it's still an important and emerging infection. Um, you brought up the CD57. We talked a little bit about that last time we were uh, together. And that was th- hoped to be an adjunctive test for late illness and thought that this natural killer cell subset would serve as a marker for a significant illness. And unfortunately, uh, we had information presented at a recent conference that really shows how variable this test is person to person and within a person day to day, hour to hour, so that its effectiveness to guide therapy or to identify people is probably less than hoped for. So, but that just reinforces for me that the laboratory cannot make this for us. It is a clinical diagnosis. It'll be very nice to find some markers that are assistive, but this may not be it. If it's extremely, extremely low, it may mean something. Or if it's extremely, extremely high, it may mean something. But everything in between, because the range that it can vary by and not be significant is so great, we don't know what to do with it anymore. So So something to consider, but... Okay. don't know what it's going to mean. There is another test that is uh, showing up that has some promise. You know, culture is the gold standard of infectious disease. We love when we can culture bugs. Right. Um, there is uh, work being done. Eva Sapi is one of the pioneers in the work being done, and it has been translated by a commercial lab called Advanced Labs. Again, none of these people are... In endorsing us here today. Right. But the hope is that we will be able to reliably culture and identify strains of the Lyme bacteria using these methods. It's um, it's it's early. You know, we still need to, the the data that they have presented looks very good as preliminary data. I think what we need now is um, replication of the studies and um, and support in in practical terms. So that's on the horizon. That's exciting. Yeah, that would be that would be something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, and we're still educating the larger medical community about this because you know I I do know I I see a lot of cases in uh, myself and uh, I did in December had a, a client who called who had a tick bite and wanted to 
deal with it immediately and, and her physician who did know more about this was out of town and ended up speaking to someone on call who said oh well it's december there's no possible way that you could have get, get lyme yeah. disease so you know i'm not mm-hmm. going to and she was actually quite ill she knew she was having a fever she said no i think i really want to yeah. get treated right away well you know i'm sorry you yeah. don't really have that. There's no way. It it's can't December. <laughs> it's, it's so hard. It's yeah. so hard because some things that sound so sensible, it just it, it's so important that medical people stay open, that, that right. we keep open minds and uh, listen to what people are telling us. You know, we just have to listen. I, these The patients who were found to have myomotoy, who had been ill before and unable to be diagnosed because there is no cross-reaction in the testing for myomotoy in Borrelia burgdorferi and doesn't cross-react. So, oh, so you need a separate So, so they were test. very sick, and yet if we tell them your test is negative... Therefore, you don't, you're, you're, you're not sick, right. although you're sick. They're yes. not the same. It's not the same thing. Your test is negative, does not equal you're okay. And and we just, you know, right. we all fall into these these stumbling places. We we stumble over ourselves sometimes. There are, right. we all have good days and bad days, <laughs> but you got to be so careful. I mean, right. people, nobody wants to be well, almost nobody wants to be sick, but nobody does. We all want to yes. feel good. Yeah. So if we're not right, we well, need people. I'm seeing here that we also have uh, some of this is coming up in a legislative way, that there's an act, uh, there's some legislation that's been um, uh, entered into at the state of Maine. Do you, do you want to talk about that or just briefly? Yes. There, there is. There's a, there's a bill before um, the uh, Health and Human Services Committee coming up for discussion. Uh, the hearing, I think, is next week. Uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, March thirteenth at yeah. one p.m. at the Cross Building. Yeah, it's uh, a room two hundred nine. I understand. Yeah. Look at you. <laughs> it's Bill Number Five Ninety Seven, LD Five Ninety Seven. LD. It could stand for Lyme disease, but it's really legislative <laughs> document, right? <laughs> Five Ninety Seven. Um, it's brought by Representative Briggs of Mexico, and she has a number of other individuals who are supporting her in bringing this. And Senator John Patrick, I believe, yeah. also. Yeah, and and this was, it's called an act to inform persons of the options for treatment of Lyme disease. And it's an interesting, um, interesting topic because I believe the folks who were motivated with um, Representative Briggs to, to, create this and make this happen are individuals who felt that they had not had adequate information at the time that they were ill in order to make good decisions. And what this bill is hoping to do is require that the treatment alternatives around uh, management of Lyme disease are uh, necessarily explained and patients' choices are allowed to be uh, considered in in treating, and and that's important. You know, we know that generally, um, patient preferences and patients' rights to know about treatment alternatives in in um, disease processes are an Im- important piece of uh, medical ethics and and coming very much to the front. And it is especially so when there's more than one possibility 
uh, for adequate or appropriate treatment. And um, it's especially so when there is limited evidence to support any particular uh, treatment modality. Uh, in reviewing the literature on on diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease, it's kind of surprising after all these years that the number of uh, scientific studies that are useful to determining how long to treat and how to make this diagnosis are actually fairly few. And a lot of them rely on um, different measures of outcome when perhaps the outcome we're most interested in is a return to your pre-illness condition. And as we become more patient-centered in our outcomes and in in our whole treatment of people in, in general, I think that we're going to see increasingly that patient preferences must be considered. And already, I mean, it, this is not... This is not new ground. This is what we expect. When you have a surgery, you expect to be informed of what the alternatives are. When you have cancer, you expect to be informed of what the alternatives are to a particular line of treatment. And it's important for physicians, I think, to really think seriously about this because even if you don't actually agree with a particular action, or if you don't feel that that's the best for a patient, we do have some responsibility to make sure patients know what, what those the options, options are. are. So, so it's an interesting bill. So you can. Um, so it, it says here that it, it would also um, have uh, information about the internet uh, the, from the ILADS, which yeah. is that would be pretty revolutionary because isn't it you know uh, not so much presented in, in on the mainstream these days well I, or I, is it i i mean i i think that the different uh, ideas about the different standards of care the different approaches to treatment for lyme disease whether early late or or um chronic uh are out there and i i think that to this bill does ask for the main cdc to make reference to other um, ideas about treatment from their own, and they suggest that the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society might be a good link. Um, since the main CDC is a primary resource for people seeking information about Lyme and how to treat, it is important then that the main CDC identify another resource that has a, a different view. So it it makes some sense. Well. So that's happening again on Wednesday, March 13th at 1 p.m. at the Cross Building, room 209. It's the, uh, so there's a public hearing on LD597. And that is the act to inform persons of the options for the treatment of Lyme disease. And we're coming to the end of a very quick hour again. Um, Happy, did you, can you very quickly tell us sure. something that's, that's um, some things that are happening? And then we'll, we'll be able to have to leave it there very there's, there's a lot going on um, for the public coming up on March 6th. We're Thanks, here with Rhonda. Oh. That's, starting, <laughs> that's starting our season. Um, March 23rd, there's a fundraiser and a gunquit at Hook's Restaurant. There's Paddle Smart. Mainline will have their information table set up there for two or three days um, giving information. Um, there's a masquerade party in Bar Harbor on April 6th given by Bar Harbor Catering. That will be a um, great event. It's a fundraiser for Maine Lime. On April 6th, also, there's a basketball tournament, Pay a Dime for Lime, at the Ellsworth Middle School. 
on April 6th in Waterville, there's Women's Wellness Fair, which Mainline will have their information table at. Um, and we'll be doing various other fundraisers. I guess the other big one is Jimmy the Greek's um, 5K fundraiser um, awareness in on April 28th oh, in Portland. And that's on your website, Mainline? Right. Mainline.org has a calendar with all of this. Well, I just want to thank you. I, we're, we're, I, the music is coming up. And I want to tell our listeners uh, that, that you can, if you've missed any of this, it's going to be on archive at weru.org. And you've been listening to Healthy Options um, with Rhonda Feynman and our very special guest, Beatrice, Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey. And I want to thank Amy Brown for engineering, Petra Hall for our production assistance, and thanks always to all of our WERU supporters. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Thank you for tuning in to Healthy Options. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press.